Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. Of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth. That speak beyond belief. A stick inside their skull would bring. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 38. I've taken my show back from Mort Todd to bring you a new season. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> The Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. Alvin, the story of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show is out. Order your hardback, paperback, and ebook copies today on Amazon and at bearmanormedia.com. I am currently still working on Friendly Ghosts, Little Devils, Giants, and Rich Kids, The Art and Creations of Warren Kremer, The Total Television Scrapbook, and The Monkey Solo Book, which now has a title called Headquartered. Soon, my earlier books will be available for the first time in hardback. I will let you know when you can purchase hardcover versions of Created and Produced by Total Television Productions, If You're Cracked, You're Happy, Volume 1 and 2, and Frozen and Ice in an upcoming episode. The Kickstarter for the comedy of Jack Davis and the comedy of John Severin was wildly successful, raising over $5,000 after a goal of $1,500. We will be shipping the books and other goodies soon. Our guest today is a singer, composer, and performer who has worked with such artists as The Monkees and with Joan Jett. He's also a member of the long-running musical group The Characters. He's a huge fan of Alvin and the Chipmunks, and he even wrote the foreword to my Chipmunks book. Here he is, Danny Salazi. Okay, on the phone I have Danny Salazi of The Characters. How are you, Danny? How are you today? Good, Mark. How are you doing? Fine. Uh, so, you were the one who wrote my introduction to my Alvin and the Chipmunks book, and but you have a 
long, varied career in the music industry. So I guess we can go over that a little bit, talk about chipmunks, talk about monkeys, other things. Uh, sure. I guess the main question I have for you is, you know, how did you get started and interested in music, and how did the characters form? Well, the way I first got started was um, in 1976, I went to see... Paul McCartney and Wings at the Philadelphia Spectrum and I was only 12 so at the time you know I was basically reading comic books Spider-Man and stuff like that and, and I you know just listened to AM radio didn't really go out and buy a lot of records um, you know was buying 45s like you know Tony Orlando and Dawn Tie Yellow Ribbon and that kind of stuff not really you know uh, but when I when when I went to see uh, that concert which was Wings Over America mm-hmm. um, it was like uh, earth-shattering event it was <laughs> like you know i had never been to a concert before and i'm, I'm 12 and so uh for a 1976 concert the production values for the wings over america tour were pretty advanced mm-hmm. uh he there was uh, from my memory is there was bubbles coming out when he came out of the you know to come out to do the first song venus and mars rock show there was like lasers there was a big scrim that came down that had Magneto and Titanium Man on it, which blew my mind because I was reading comic books at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, a projector came down and showed some footage from the Band on the Run photo shoot. It was just a, like it was just unbelievable. And then, you know, I was familiar with some of the songs uh, because you know there, there was a lot of Beatles songs in there and and, uh, and McCartney hits. And then some of the stuff I, I obviously didn't know. But I remember I was behind the stage. And I was looking down with binoculars at the people in the front row, and I was amazed. I was We were up in the blue section, the high section. I was amazed <laughs> at the people in the front rows singing every word to every song. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to be like that one day. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to know every word to all the songs. And then uh, I also th- you know, said, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to do this also. I, I want to be you know, up there. So the next day, I went out on my bicycle, and I bought... Ram and Band on the Run mm. um, and ro- rode it home on my bicycle, started listening to it and just was knocked out by them and then uh, I bought there was the, the record store that I used to go to was a place called Melody Records in Union mm. uh, New Jersey and they had a poster on the wall because 76 was a big Beatle year because Paul was touring right. so they had a po- poster that had all of the album covers, all the Capitol Records stuff. Uh, so it had all the Beatle ones, and then it had a little section for each individual Beatle one. So I, I got it, I put it up in my room, and that was my Bible. In other words, whenever I got money, I'd be like, oh, yesterday and today, that looks like a good one. I'm going to get that one. You know, cause, <laughs> you know, and then the next thing, you know, I'd be like, oh, I, I'd bounce around, and I'd be like, I got to get the one that has maybe I'm amazed on it. So I'll right. get that one. Uh-huh. You know? And so that was basically it. Uh, you know, I was hooked. I mean, I was, you know, it's just, it was just like all consuming and I had a lot of catching up to do because, you know, it was, yeah. you know, a lot of records to buy. Uh, and then I found other people that were interested in it as well. And then, uh, it was always my intention. I went out and bought an ovation acoustic guitar, uh, just like Paul had and, you know, tried to learn how to play and, you know, got somewhere, uh, down the road a little <laughs> bit. And then when I got to be a little bit older, um, and uh, when I was 19, I formed the characters. Um, hmm. And our, our approach was going to be that we were going to be like everybody. That, you know, the thing about the funny thing about the characters is we never fit into whatever was happening at the moment, and we still don't fit in. And we're just we're just the characters. <laughs> That's what it is. So in other words, we saw we were the we were the characters during grunge. We were the characters during you know the glam rock.
rock thing. It just we want it to be kind of like uh, a combination of let's say the Beatles, the Monkees, Joan Jett, and the Blackhearts. You know, okay. all that put into like four four guys that were just. Um, kind of having fun not taking them, themselves and their, their image too seriously we weren't going to be like a like a progressive band that you, you know where you didn't know the guys names that well and you could they didn't really have a, like distinct personalities we kind of wanted to be like we would have loved to have our own saturday morning tv show right you know so that was it was that kind of a thing now um have you had the same four guys the whole time, or is it uh, band changes and stuff, member uh, changes? Well, we have been together for 38 years, which has got to oh. be a record. Wow. But, um, but yeah, uh, so what's happened in all that time is that we've had um, guys, the original guys, uh, some of the some of the one guy was in for 15 years, another guy was in for 20, um, and one of the guys that currently is in is an original member. Was it was our guitar player, and now is back as our bass player because we need a bass player. Hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah. So I mean, it's like it's like uh, when uh, Al Pacino says, you know, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. You know, so <laughs> now you've been in the group the whole time, I assume. Yes, I have oh. been. Okay, so yeah, I guess effect. in effect, you're the. The leader, as it were, is that how it goes? I mean, what? Uh, yeah, I would say the reluctant leader, but yeah, <laughs> somebody's got to keep it together. But you know, if I had my way and we had like a manager guy, I'd probably be rallying against that guy. Cause, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, but I, I have to be that guy, which I, I would, I would ra- rather not be that guy. But yeah, so you need somebody to keep it together. And right. That's the one thing is that, uh, you know, that I've, I've, you know, the one thing that I give us credit for is that we have kept it together. Um, a lot of bands, they they um they just can't stay together, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Okay. Well, you you gave me some songs here. Let me go, let me play one here, and then uh, we can talk a little bit more about the band and other things. Uh, so the first one you gave me is this one called "I Need You Tonight," and it's it it, it appears to be like a a pleasant mid '60s sounding rocker. And uh, did you write? You didn't give me any credit, so you got to tell me. Did you write this, or did other be- yeah, members every- of the band? Okay. No, everything, everything. Uh, it, I I write all the stuff. So, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and like I said, we just we just took our influences and just it, it kind of just came out however it came out. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, in other words, uh, you know, like I said, very the thing that we were very uh, influenced by was well-crafted songs so we weren't uh, gonna do like seven-minute instrumentals and things like that it was more about you know uh, songs that you know you could remember had good hooks had uh, catchy melodies things like that that's the stuff we love you know I mean you know we just loved all that stuff like the Beatles the Kinks the Rolling Stones Simon and Garfunkel Elton John all that kind of stuff uh, Paul Simon you know that so our main and the monkeys i mean the monkeys yeah. had great great songs uh so that was you know we just wanted to write good songs that people would remember and sing along to okay and uh let's listen to it now and then i'll come right back okay
And that was I Need You Tonight. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, let's see, the next song I see on here is uh, like a more up-tempo song, and it was called I Just Want You. Uh, so for these type of songs that you sent me, are, is there any other inspiration besides sounding like 60s bands, or do you have any sort of... Uh, I guess what's the best way to ask it besides that um, is there anything specifically you're trying to get with each song well we weren't trying to sound like 60s band, 60s band per se it was just that it's if, if you um, if you go to a museum that has certain paint paintings in it and then you go decide to do your own painting you're going to be influenced by the ones that you saw so so it, uh, so we were equally as influenced by let's say like I said Joan Jett and the Blackhearts or Elvis Costello as we were you know the Kinks and the Beatles and stuff like that so we just took from in other words I think a lot of the the groups that we liked also pulled from the same sources that we liked and then we also we also pulled from the generation before them before the internet and this is you know in 1982 we were reading books and uh learning about Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and and all that kind of stuff because that's where the you know the, the groups that we listened to got their influence from. Mm -hmm. So you had to actually search that stuff out and uh, and then you find out, oh wow, Buddy Holly has really great songs. I mean it's a self contained <laughs> unit and these you know so it was it was all about to me it was all about the songs. Yeah. If a if a group had good songs I was in.
And um, you mentioned Joan Jett a couple times here, so, and I, I was looking kind of at your basic history online, and so you've worked with her a few times, haven't you? Well, I actually worked for her for 10 worked years. For her. I was, okay. I was, yeah, I was the product manager over at Blackheart Records, and, um, and we would also open shows for Joan Jett. Um, you know, we were, we were on Blackheart Records, our, our, debut album came out on Blackheart Records mm-hmm. and uh, and we were fortunate enough to have her sing harmony on a song called Last of a Dying Breed mm-hmm. and um, and so one of the things that where she comes into the mix is um, so now uh, I've learned to play guitar you know well enough to play in front of people let's say <laughs> uh, I, I don't know whether anything has changed since then but uh, so uh, when the band starts uh, I see Joan Jett uh, at a place called the Fountain Casino when I'm like a senior in high school and I had the Runaways album back in 76 because Cream Magazine had said that they were going to be the next Beatles and I was 12 so I didn't really get it I didn't really understand what they meant by that I, I thought okay this is going <clears> to <throat> sound like the Beatles mm-hmm. but um, I, what they what they actually meant was they were going to be as big as the Beatles right. so I brought brought the record home and I listened to it and I liked it I, I definitely liked it and um and then when Joan Jett put a, a her um, first solo album out, it was getting uh, some airplay on WNEW New York, and I went to see her at a place called the Fountain Casino mm-hmm. in Aberdeen, New Jersey. And there was just she's got this unbelievable stage presence yeah. and this um, yeah. uh, just uh, she's just so cool, mm-hmm. you know. And so I saw her and how she was doing her thing, and I thought, hmm. You know, I like this, and I like the Beatles approach too. So maybe I'm going to marry these two things together, and that's kind of you know, you know what the early characters and even today still you know mm-hmm. we kind of have that as our some of our main influences. So mm-hmm. it was a weird thing because I actually um, saw her and she was playing this white Gibson Melody Maker, uh-huh. and and I had never seen that guitar before, uh, and they actually did not make them in white. I later found out because I went around to all the used guitar shops and the one at press. Like I said, it's hard for people to understand that don't understand the pre-internet world. You couldn't go on the computer and Google Gibson Melody Maker. There was no <laughs> computer. Mm-hmm, it right. was like you had to ask people that new guitars. So uh, I um, didn't know that you couldn't buy a white one. The story behind that guitar was that it was actually Eric Carmen from the Raspberries. Oh, wow. She was on tour in Cleveland with the Runaways and somehow she found out that that guitar was for sale and she bought it. So I fell in love with that guitar. Uh, it was what I what I liked about it was that she was the only one I saw ever playing it. And I thought, okay, so I could play a Rickenbacker or I could play a Strat or a Les Paul like everybody else. But there's a, I haven't seen many people play this guitar, and so I, I I searched it out and I had I found one that was stripped down to the wood. Um, and I had it painted white, and I had all the cosmetics done so that the pit guard and everything would look like hers. And I never dreamed in a million years that I would ever even meet her, never mind be able to open up for her. <laughs> so the first first time we opened up for her, I was like, oh, man, this is embarrassing. I have your, like, custom guitar. I have the same guitar as you. Is this, is this a problem? You mm-hmm. know, like, in other words, I, you know, I could play a different guitar for tonight's show. And she was like, no, it's fine. You know, she, I think she was flattered that somebody went that was that influenced by her. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so that, you know that was kind of a you know a, a, you know an unexpected moment for me that when we finally got to open for because what how that happened was um, we had got asked to play.
play this monkeys convention. Well, we had played this monkeys convention in Philadelphia in 1986. Right. Um, right. The monkeys were getting um, played on MTV three times a day when MTV did the Pleasant Valley weekend or whatever they called it, and then they started showing the show three times a day. Now, all these kids that either hadn't seen the show ever or just had heard of the show, whatever, the show was back on the air, and they were selling records like it was on Rhino Records was reissuing the albums certain albums that never even charted like the Changes album hadn't even charted in its original run (laughs) charted in 86 because it was like because of the resurgence so they had they, they had this Monkeys convention in Philadelphia and and as like a teenager as a 16 year old guy I went to the second convention they had in Trenton uh, which was like in a VFW hall with like, I don't know, maybe 60 people or something like that. But I was always a Monkees fan. Uh, I would watch the show and I always thought to myself, man, that is that is such a cool way to do it. In other words, live in the same house and <laughs> have all this fun and you know what I mean? And just, you know, play music and, and make people happy. So, um, so they were a huge influence and you couldn't find the records back at the time either. In other words, you could find a couple greatest hits and you'd have to go to like, you know, record shows to find stuff and whatnot but when that all hit and Rhino put the thing out we um, contacted the person that was doing the convention in Philadelphia which no one expected this thing to be as big as it turned out to be because it just kept growing and growing at a just an unbelievable rate uh, so the thing sold out there was like 1400 kids at this uh, hotel in in Philadelphia and they asked us to do it and we, there was a couple of the bands that tried out for but they picked us I, I think the thing the reason they picked us is because we had that spirit and we were four young guys we were like 22 at the time and we kind of just you know um, we got it I don't know if that makes any sense but we kind of you know. no I get it yeah it's like um I was I was never into the music end but you know I, I forgot have you seen my monkey's book or no uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. Okay, all right. But I'm I'm, I'm going to get it now after this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it was you know, briefly, my situation was always, you know, I, I'm a few years younger than you, and it's like to go back to what you said earlier about McCartney. I always was jealous that I didn't get to see Wings Over America, and you got to see it because I had to wait till 1989 for McCartney to tour again. Uh, <laughs> so it was a long wait. But uh, yeah. on the monkeys, you know, I, I never really cared for their TV show when I was a kid, strangely enough, but I I started getting into the music, and I never thought in a million years they'd ever get together again. It just seemed like they were so different that the you know. And then when they finally did, like what you're talking about, it was like I got it too. I was like, wow, you know, it, you know, there's some there's some chemistry there of some sort that you know and, you know if you get it you get it and uh so i was yeah i was hooked like you did but i was just seeing it as a fan and just absorbing the music and then eventually i got into the tv show and everything like that but uh so that's my take on it <laughs> yeah so so they asked us to do this thing and you know and it's you know how it's like in hindsight you think oh of course but at the time we were like we were kind of scared to death that they weren't people weren't going to accept what we were doing i mean our take on it was and it's always been our take even when we do our our cover shows that we do you know about other people's music we never try to sound like the original artist because it's it's just not it, it, it you know it I can't explain it, but we don't have that in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe we're not good enough to sound like the original artists. So we just sound like us. You right. know, we, we always, I always look at it as like this. 
you are never going to you're never going to get lightning in a bottle twice. In other mm-hmm. words, you're, you're never going to be able to record a version of Hey Jude that tops the Beatles. So, you know what I mean? Don't even try. Um, <laughs> so with with us, we do we do the songs live, but we try to do them like how the best way that we can do them, whatever suits my voice or whatever suits our playing style. So when we did the Monkeys Convention, we were basically doing the songs as as you know we would do them so we weren't trying to you know do a straight on copy or whatever i mean we stayed faithful but we didn't nitpick every little chord inversion and make sure that every little thing you know we tried to just interpret it the way that the best way we could whatever however the song sounded the best way that we could do it is how we did it so we weren't sure when we got up on that stage and there was like i said there was 1400 screaming kids in that room um we weren't sure they were going to hate us or or love us, and uh, and they they went berserk. It was like it, it, you know, I turned around and looked at the drummer, and, and we had been playing small clubs like the Dirt Club in Bloomfield, and little you know maybe to you know sixty people or something like that, or maybe two hundred at the most. And uh, I turned around and looked at him. I said, "We're in concert." <laughs> now, when you were so, when you were doing those shows, were you just playing monkeys covers, or were you doing your own like the couple songs we played, or uh, different? things or what did you play so what happened was we did the first one which we just did a set of monkey songs okay then then uh somebody at the convention saw us this guy i you probably know who he is he's well known in monkey fandom uh gary strobel i have heard of him i don't know him personally but yeah yeah. he's uh he's uh he's he's writing a book about the monkeys for the past like 20 years or something and (laughs) it's coming out soon but um but he um but he is you know um you know, a monkey archivist. He's he's always helped out on the Rhino Records projects. Um, he's he's just a a, a historian. It's the best way to to, yeah. to, uh, to categorize. So anyway, he got a tape of a song called Marianne, and that that's going to be key in in um, when I get to the Joan Jet part of the story. But anyway, um, <laughs> so this song called Marianne. Uh, he sends this tape to Rodney Bingenheimer, who is a disc jockey at the time on. K-R-O-Q-F-M. Right now, he's this jockey on Little Steven's Underground Garage, and he still plays the characters. Um, but, but so, 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 the, so this tape of the song Marianne gets sent out there. They ask us to do the Monkeys Convention a month later in L.A., and and uh, so we said yeah. So then we find out we get a call from the drummer's brother and says, you know, I think there's a they're playing you in Los Angeles, and I was like. He goes, you have a song called Marianne, right? We said, yeah.
out and he was playing us on, on KROQ. So the next thing I know, he sets us up bef- three days before we get to L.A. to, I mean, three days before we're supposed to play the Monkees convention. Mm-hmm. He he puts us on a bill with a group called Dramarama, who had a big hit in L.A. called Anything Anything. Mm-hmm. And w- we get off the, the plane and two days later we're playing to a sold out crowd at the Roxy on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> wow. It was like, it was it was unbelievable. Then we get to the Monkees convention and and, uh, and th- at the Roxy we're doing our own songs. Mm. Uh, and then and then at this the next Monkees convention and everyone that came came after that, which we did them in you know Detroit, Chicago, Tucson, Arizona, uh, Tacoma, Washington, you know just uh, all all over the place. We did many 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 conventions for two or three four years after that. Uh, we would always do a set of monkeys, and then so, just because I, I totally get where people's heads are at, if uh, we said look. This is a bonus set at the end of the night. In other words, we did our we did our set of monkeys. If you want to stick around and hear our own stuff, you know you're welcome to do that. So we didn't mix them in, if you know what I mean. Like oh, okay. We didn't okay. we didn't we didn't force it on anybody. <laughs> and, the, and and the kids would stay. And the weird part about that whole situation was, and and again, I keep saying this pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-all that stuff, is that we would travel to all these weird locations like Detroit or Chicago or you know not weird, but I mean for us, you know places that a little New Jersey band wouldn't normally get to go um, without a record deal. And and these kids would fly in from all over the place. I mean, people were coming from Japan and Australia and all these other places. And they would see the band, and then they would disperse back to where they're from. And so we'd be getting letters from all over the country, even England and, you know, mm-hmm. wherever it was. So they started a little a fanzine for us. And so we would do... Um, you know, if four four times a year they would send out a fanzine that was kind of based on that monkey business fanzine, and then mm-hmm. at the end of the year we would do a, a Christmas cassette, which was kind of like we got that idea from the Beatles, Beatles Christmas yeah. flexis, yeah. yeah. And we would do our own thing, uh, which was they were about fifteen minutes long each because at first we were going to do a flexi disc, and it turned out it was too expensive and we couldn't get it out on time mm. uh, with a pressing plant. So we decided that we would do cassettes, and the good thing about the cassette was we could make them longer. Mm. We could make them f- fifteen minutes long. So each one. You usually had three Christmas songs on it, plus a whole bunch of skits, which kind of were like all the weird stuff that happened to us during the year. Um, we threw, we, we, if you did something to us uh, that was like not nice, let's say, during the year, you wound up in one of our skits. Uh, as, you know, so, so anyway, so, so we did all that. And uh, so anyway, so we get out to L.A. and Rodney's playing uh, Marianne. And then um, I had sent the tape of Marianne to Black Art Records because I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I would love to be on that label. And you know, they, I think Kenny Laguna, who's Joan Jett's manager, who was a bubblegum guy who played on like stuff like Green Tambourine and One Two Three Red Light, um, and Indian Giver and stuff like that. He, um, I figured he would get us right. So we mm-hmm. sent the tape to Blackheart. Blackheart called us back. They said they liked the tape and they wanted to have a meeting. And whenever I would call the office, he wasn't around or whatever it was. So I just thought, okay, maybe they're not that interested. So then now we fast forward to, I guess, 1987 maybe. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1987. And Joan Jett is the in-studio guest of Rodney Bingenheimer's on KROQ. And they play Marianne. Rodney mm-hmm. plays Marianne. And Kenny's flipping out over the song. He's like, God, this is a hit. I love this song. I tried to contact the kid. He never got back to me or whatever it was. And so we were living in L.A. at the time. And uh, I went and had a meeting with Kenny. And I said, you know, we're willing to move back to New York if you'll manage us. And that's mm-hmm. what we did. We uh, And he gave us the opportunity. We were actually living in L.A. And he said, you know, if you want to open up for Joan Jett 
uh, at the, the George and the Blackhearts at the Chance in Poughkeepsie, and we we took a plane back and opened up for them. There was, <laughs> didn't, we didn't even like, in other words, we, whatever we whatever we made on the gig didn't even co- cover the, the flights. But we we wanted to do it so bad that we actually flew back and did it, and then um, and then we came back and you know I started working at the company and we started doing shows with them and as a matter of fact one of the cool things that happened in our tenure at Blackheart uh, was that Kenny was also managing the Kinks at the time yeah. and uh, he got us an opening shot for the Kinks in, in Maine mm-hmm. which was unbelievable and I used to drive Ray Davies around so that was pretty <laughs> weird wow yep yeah <laughs> it, it was it was a weird feeling like a Ray would say to me, so what do you do in the group? And I go, wait, this is not happening. This is like, you know, Mick Jagger coming coming up to me and asking me about my group. You know, it was like, it was just, it was very cool. I remember one time we went to a print shop and he goes to me, you know, I've written a play and he t- starts start telling me, and I know it's Arthur, of course. I love right. Arthur, the album, you know. I knew, I told him, I said, yeah, Arthur, yeah, I know. And it was just like, it was it was just unbelievable that so many of our, our, our heroes, our influences, we had, we worked with, we got to do stuff with. Wow. I mean, we've had Mickey, Peter, and Davey multiple times on stage with us. Right. right. Um, open for Joan Jett 20 times. Uh, open for the Kinks. I mean, right there, those are those groups are those are the in the top five for the characters you know mm, okay. uh, you know and we got to actually do stuff with them so that was pretty unbelievable in all these situations monkeys joan jet or uh, even the kinks did you ever you played on stage with them as well or just opening act or how did that work okay so with the kinks it was just we opened for them okay um joan jet we opened for her, and she and she sang on our record. Kenny Laguna has been on stage with the characters many times. You know, jumped up. In fact, sometimes while okay. we were opening for Joan, we'd bring Kenny up to do a song because he was like kind of like a, a brother in the, the. He he loves the same kind of music we love. He's mm-hmm. really, um, he's got. First of all, he knows everybody. Okay. I mean, he's worked with everybody. He knows everybody. He's got stories about everybody. But he's also just he's just one of these guys that he just loves music. And um, and you could just talk to him about you know like you know Beach Boy records or Rubber Soul or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And he's got a story about something, you know. So <laughs> so um so anyway so that was that. And then as far as the monkeys go, um, we started out by doing the conventions, and then uh, what we would do is we would like uh, learn some songs. Like when Heart and Soul came out, mm-hmm. uh, we figured okay, this is a brand new record. They're probably going to want to push it. We learned it. And we told them we learned it, and they did it with us. You know what I mean? They got up on stage. Peter and Mickey got up on stage with us. In other instances, uh, Davey had done Hippie, 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 Shake as an Australian single. And we had learned it off of a Beatles bootleg from back in the early 80s. Right. uh, (laughs) Which we didn't even know where that stuff came from. It was BBC stuff, but we didn't know what it was. It was just on, you know, these, like cheapo vinyl bootlegs that we got and we were doing Hippie Be Shake in our set and so I mentioned it to him and, and he did it with us.
Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. I think... I'm not sure, but I think I've got to go now. And I'll see you all there, you know. With Peter, uh, out of all of them, we did the most work with Peter. Um, we... We ha he played with us many, many times, it, you know, as a band member, uh, you know, I mean, as just, you know, alongside of us. Uh, and, and we would open shows for him with his Shoe Suede Blues, like yeah. all over the place. Like we did mm -hmm. one in California. We did, a, uh, we did a couple in California. And then we did some in Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, out in Long Island, you know, just a bunch of stuff. So uh, he was, he was a kind of like a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, he would, uh, um, you know, I, I would call him up and I would ask him, advice and sometimes if I was you know frustrated or whatever it was you know I would you know kind of vent and he uh, you know the, the thing that was interesting is that he would go from playing like the amphitheater with the monkeys to the next night doing a small little club with us somewhere <laughs> wow I mean that's that that shows you what a cool guy he was yeah now, now you gave me a couple different ones, and I was just wanting to know a little more information about them. Uh, uh, the Hippie Hippie Shake you gave me, you said, was with Davy Jones. Um, when was that recorded and where? That was at the Hollywood Palace. Uh, oh, wow. You know the, okay. the TV show that, uh, that everybody was on in the 60s, like Dean Martin and all that stuff? Yeah. That was, the convention was held at, at the place. It was called the Hollywood Palace. Oh, wow. And, okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't know it at the time that I was on the same stage as like the Rolling Stones right. <laughs> and everybody else and you know I mean if you ever knew how many famous people were on that stage your mind would be blown it was just you know mm -hmm. that was a that was a big show um, but yeah so he got up and he that day he did Hippie Hippie Shake with us and he did every step of the way okay. the the clip of Hippie Hippie Shake has uh, been on YouTube for a long time and it's it's like a you know it, it's a well known clip everybody you know seems to know that one pretty well right. um the other ones on the, the the other ones that you have is Heart and Soul with Peter and Mickey. That was at the Teaneck Convention, okay. uh, and we had both of them on stage for that.
Tulane, which yeah, was uh, a I'm Chuck Berry song, which was a weird thing. I don't even know how we got to that, but at the time, <laughs> Joan, Joan had that on her Up Your Alley album, but I, it was right around the same time. I don't know why Peter and, and me settled on that one, but we, we did it you know, many, many times together at different locations. And gentlemen, I am sorry. That's the end of the questions. I do, however, I do, however, have one more thing. I was going to get the characters up here and do a couple of things.
that's the ones that you have the recordings of. Yeah, but then there's yeah. a, a whole bunch of other stuff that. And, the, and what, what was the time frame on these again? Those last two, the. Um, roughly. The, the Heart and Soul was, I believe, 1987 in August, Teaneck, and I think the other one was it was 87 or 88 in Chicago. The ones with Peter alone. Okay. Um, you know. Okay. Yeah, it could have been 87 Chicago. And did, did you work with them later on or just in, during the 80s mainly? No, Peter, we worked with, uh, you know, there's, there, we just posted a clip of us with Peter at the Firehouse Pub in Raleigh, New Jersey from 2005. Oh, okay. We did shows with him. We did shows with him, uh, you know, uh, we did some Valley something in Levittown or something. I forget what that was, but 2012, 2011. We, you know, I, I couldn't remember the, the very last thing that we did with Peter, but I'm, I mean, we, it was a, you know, a 20, 25, 30 year relationship. Right, right. And of course, both of them are gone now, Davy and Peter, which is sad, but it happens. <laughs> After yeah. All. But uh, did you ever have any, like, uh, you know, with any of the monkeys uh, or any of the other people that we're talking about, just uh, any private time, just, you know, hanging out with them or anything like that, or is it always strictly professional? Or? No, no, we, we, you know, like, uh, you know, we did, me and Peter did a, a show one time where it was just me and him, mm -hmm. um, acoustic thing, and then the next day the band came. Um, and, you know, we were working stuff out in the hotel room. I always have this little memory of... Um, Daydream Believer because we were doing Daydream Believer and uh, I hit a a major or a minor chord in the chorus in in one of the uh, in the verse it's a major and the in the chorus it's a minor I forget which one it was but Peter pointed it out to me he said to me that that's actually a major or a minor I can't remember right now <laughs> but it, it was one of those so when we do that and we have the whole crowd singing along in my head yeah I'm I'm, I'm always thinking of that moment right there right. I'm always thinking you know. This is when the guy who, like, you know, played on this record, you know, told me, you know, <laughs> you know what the right chord was. Right. It's like, a, it's it's a weird feeling when you get the crowd to sing along to, to something. Right. Uh, you have that communal uh, moment, and then you also have your own private moment of, you know, what that song might mean to you or what memory it, it hits you with. Because everybody else is having that same moment for, for whatever their memory of it. Right. You mentioned Rodney on the Rock and you sent me some different things and I was a little bit confused about it. I don't know if I'm going to play them, but I, I listened to them, you know, it's just various voices just saying their mostly positive comments about the characters and things like that. What's the genesis of that and what what was that about? Was that when you were just on the show with them with Joan Jett or whatever or uh, um, it, it, it's one of two things. I'm not sure if you're referring to just the little band that we put on one of our records, which was Rodney talking about the band yeah. and also people calling in. And then we also, um, there is a skit that we do that's called The Characters Visit Rodney that uh, has been on a couple of Christmas compilation albums. Oh, Rodney, okay. Rodney, Rodney loves this skit. He closes his Christmas show every year with The Characters Visit Rodney. So what it was <laughs> was we, 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 we uh, were, you know, going to see him and he thinks we're soliciting him uh, to play our music, but he already knows who we are, so he lets us in and he's like, oh, The Characters, I was just listening to you. So we ask him if he knows Santa Claus. We start asking him for um, presents, and, and you could ask Santa to get us this stuff for us until finally we're all yelling up what we want, and it's almost like a Dave 
Seville and uh, Chipmunks moment where at the end he's like, silence, silence, I demand silence, and then the skit ends, you know. So, uh, so I, you know, it didn't even dawn on me that uh, probably the Chipmunks were the influence for that little skit because uh, it, it ends with us getting yelled at. Yeah. So but yeah. So so we um we had a song called This Is Goodbye that was on the best of Rodney on the Rock that came out back in the day on Rhino Records and Chip Douglas produced it. That's another that's another little bit of the story. We flew out in 1987 to work with Chip Douglas to do, we did an album with him that um, that we released years later. We actually remixed it and finally put it out because, um, you know, technology had improved and we were able to we, what it was, is, it's, a, it's a little technical, but we it was a 16 track, 2 inch uh, two-inch tape, 16-track recording, and we couldn't find any place affordable to remix the record. And then when the digital world opened up, we were able to, to do it in in you know a, a more um, uh, affordable studio. And so we put put that record out called "The Early Characters," which is actually um, an homage to the early Beatles records. So when oh, okay. That, <laughs> so it wasn't it, just a coincidence that you called it that. Okay. <laughs> We stole the artwork. If you look at the album cover, it's okay. the top of the top of it is the exact lettering of the early Beatles, with the same <laughs> color scheme and everything. And you've got the little stereo thing right. and all that. And uh, it doesn't say something like electrifying big beat performances by the you know, <laughs> But uh, it, it says you know something like unreleased recordings. But it's the same. It's the same concept. In other words, it's stuff that was you know that we recorded, but maybe you haven't heard it. You know, or it didn't come out. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so yeah, so we recorded ten songs with Chip Douglas back in nineteen eighty seven. And again, you know, uh, his track record is unbelievably produced. The Turtles. Linda Ronstadt, The Monkees, and mm -hmm. for The Monkees, the big hits were Pleasant Valley Sunday and Daydream Believer. Right. I mean, you can't ask for better production values than on those two songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're just off the charts, the way that those records are produced. They're perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, he, he, he was, we sent him our stuff, he loved our stuff, and we flew out there and we did it. Yeah, I want to try that something.
Was it a little intimidating, or are you just business as usual for you? Um, it was intimidating. It was a little intimidating, <laughs> but, we, but no. we got used to it after a while. And no. then I went out there uh, 10 years later and did some stuff with him. And then recently, I did some stuff remotely with him. He had this song called Today, which was originally intended for the Monkees, and, and I think they recorded it around the time of the steam engine sessions in 69. But for whatever reason, they never put a, a monkey vocal on it. So right. We did a version of it, an unreleased version of it, um, in '97, I think. And then, um, then the monkeys were doing their Christmas record recently, and Andrew Sandoval had asked Chip Douglas to rewrite the song as a Christmas song. Mm -hmm. So he he re re rewrote the lyrics. Andrew Sandoval is the guy that. You know, does all the tour stuff with yeah. the monkeys, and, yeah. he write, and he writes all the liner notes, and he's he's, he's an unbelievable you know historian as well. Um, now and him him I know I've met him a few times, and he's a really cool guy. So yes, <laughs> yeah. So and so he asked Chip to rewrite the song as a Christmas song, and then uh, Chip said to me, "Well, you have a high tenor voice. You want to do the demo? I did the demo, but I guess we didn't get in in, in on time, uh, so it didn't make it. So we we put it on YouTube last year, and I don't know whether we'll." You know, press it or do something this year. Uh, we still have a couple months to figure that one out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and now it's called Christmas Time, which is also very funny because we also recorded this past Christmas, which we didn't. We only put it on YouTube, but we didn't get it out there. We we recorded three chipmunks. Right. You you, you sent me those. Uh, yeah. Since you keep alluding to the chipmunks, let's talk about the chipmunks. Why not? Um, <laughs> what. I assume your fascination with the chipmunks started in childhood, like most of us, right? <laughs> yeah. What happened was uh, I wasn't even born yet, and um, <laughs> uh, people that lived a couple blocks over were friends uh, of my parents, and the guy worked at Liberty Records. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he gave my parents three chipmunks records to my for my sisters. I wasn't even born yet. Uh, it was... It was um, let's all sing with the Chipmunks, um, around the world with the Chipmunks, and the Alvin Show, and all of them had the foil covers. The first two had the cartoon, uh, the uh, the actual Chipmunk-looking Chipmunk, chipmunk right. renderings. Right, the ones we call the the rab the ones that'll give you rabies. That one, <laughs> those. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so they gave them those records, and then when I came along, uh, I inherited them, and I listened to them nonstop. I mean, I can I can do Mrs. Frumpington's, Frumpington's story word for word. Uh, I mean, you know, I, just, I fell in love with those records. I mean, do you, ever, I, you know, do you ever do that on stage? No. Just, no, yeah. no, I haven't done it on stage. But, uh, maybe I'll, I'll start doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I fell in love with those records. I mean, there was there was so much to love about them. Um, I mean, I just I, I can't explain it, but the, the harmonies, even though they're sped up, they're beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. they just sound so good. I mean, the guy knew how to put a song together and knew how to put a record together. Yeah. Uh, and and I also, you know, it was believable. I mean, it just seemed like that stuff was happening. Like there was a guy yelling at somebody called Alvin. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just seemed like you know. So I, I was always that was like a huge influence. Uh, and just love those records. And then as I got older, I started to seek out all the other stuff that he did. And I started to buy his, you know, solo 45s that I could find and his other records and all that. And uh, 
and you know, uh, we we actually, um, you know, uh, so this year we, I, uh, I just decided, you know what, there was there's these three songs that I always loved by them that I always felt like, uh, well, the, the the hit we just wanted to do just because it's a, it's to me, I, it's a great Christmas song. It's one of the best Christmas songs. Christmas, don't be late. Right. And then I really loved the, this song called Christmas Time, which was a um, uh, a variation on Green Sleeves. It's the melody of Green Sleeves, and I think maybe he wrote his own lyrics to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then right. and then hang hang up your stocking, mm-hmm. which to, to me is like an unknown gem. You know, it's just this great little song with a swing thing going on and horns and all that. So I thought, you know what? Nobody's ever heard these with real voices. So right. let's try it. Yeah. And, and we did it, and people loved it. Christmas, Christmas time is near Time for toys and time for cheer We've been good but we can last Hurry Christmas, hurry fast Want a plane that loops the loop Me, I want a hula hoop We How 
because it's just people kind of do a a straight rendition kind of as a joke, but you kind of nailed it as like, no, this is a legit record, this is a legit song, let's just do it straight, and do it at a normal voice rate, not sped up, and uh, it's just kind of funny that uh, Christmas Don't Be Late has never become just like a regular perennial, like, you know, any other song, like Chestnuts Roasting on the Open Fire, or whatever, you know, it's like, just because the chipmunks kind of taints it somehow, I guess. I don't know, because a song is a song, I would think. It's a a great melody. It's a great melody. Right. And, uh, you know, even on that, if you you just listen to the orchestrations, you know, know, I found out, and you'll know when you read the book, you know, it's like a lot of those songs were performed by that infamous wrecking crew down in L.A., and it's like... um, It's just amazing instrumentation to me, you know. It's like, because... Ross Bagdasarian himself, he wasn't really, uh, you know, he didn't really play instruments. I mean, he might have played the piano a little bit, but, uh, you know, you know, he left it to the professionals to really, you know, and he, he just basically sung his melodies into the tape recorder. That was his recording device, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing that's really um, interesting about those records is they are so well recorded. I mean, you know, if you didn't... If you take out the fact that it's three high-pitched chipmunks singing and listen just to the backing track, yeah. not only is it played phenomenally well, but it's whoever the engineers were and whoever was you know, put, doing the production work on it, it's just as good as any other record that's out there. As yeah. far as, you know, well, I, I believe Ted Keep was mo- the engineer on most of those records, which, of course, is the namesake for Theodore. So, uh, because he was the Liberty recording engineer for the most part, and I think right. he, he, I think he did everybody's record over at Liberty, not just uh, Ross Bagdasarian's records. It was just he was the engineer, and that's what he did. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but you know, they all have that kind of similar sound. I mean, if you listen to other groups on the label like Martin Denny and stuff like that, you know, they got that same kind of sound going, and even the backing for, you know, you know, something is maybe considered different like Jan and Dean or anything like that, you know, they still have that kind of same sound because, yeah, they use the wrecking crew and they use the same engineering and the same studios and same everything, so. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, really, I really like that Martin Denny stuff. Right. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, it's it's all kind of the same vintage, you know, the 50s and 60s where, you know, everything was kind of independent and everything had this sound to it. You know, now, you know, it's just like everything else. Everybody's owned by the UM Universal Music uh, conglomerate. And, you know, it's like it's all, you know, with the... <laughs> What's that called? The, the where they uh, synthesize the voices. Uh, I can't even. Oh, think, yeah. You know. Auto auto tune. Yeah, yeah. And it's like. The thing is, everybody's got these these pro tools that make everything sound like you know. In other words, you could you could play something horribly through a horrible amp, and then they push a button, and it sounds like a great Marshall amp at Madison Square Garden or something. So, in other words, you don't get the individual sound of any room or any. Uh, in other words, because everybody's pulling from the same pool. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, because yep. of the, the the electronic sampling and stuff, whatever they use these days, m- many records sound very similar. Whereas right. in the old days, you know, uh, I love the Kinks, but the Kinks, uh, or I love the Stones, but the Stones records do not 
in my opinion, and I love the Stones. It's not the songs I'm talking about. The way they were recorded, uh, George Martin knew how to record the Beatles, mm-hmm. and and the Stones records don't really have as uh, the fidelity is not the same as the Beatles. You're, you're you're referring to the ones they they recorded in the '60s mainly, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Early, the early stuff. <laughs> right. Because I think by the time Jimmy Miller got in there, they started improving. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about the Andrew Lug Oldham stuff. Yeah, which that's what I'm talking. Sometimes about. I wonder yeah. how professional he was. He was just kind of there, and you know, you know, plugged in a mic, and all right, go. You know, it's that's, like <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, of course, Jimmy Miller, great. You know, yeah, um, yeah. and the early the early stuff is great too. But I just think that um, the clarity on a on a Beatles record is you know, uh, you know, they they they. they Right, I get it. Yeah, and of course, you know, now with Giles Martin remastering everything, it sounds even better. You know, so you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing what they can do now, right? I do, I do hope they eventually go back to the earlier albums. I know that you know the anniversary thing; they have to do Abbey Road and everything. But I hope they kind of go around the pike and, if they can, you know, start at the beginning, please, please me, and everything. You know, so I see what they can what? do. <laughs> even even the ones that are out now. Yeah. When you, for me, when I listen to something off with the Beatles, sometimes I feel like the amp is in the room with me. It's so clear. Right. It's like you know, it's so well recorded. Yeah. You know, they had the they had the best microphones. They had the best equipment. You know, it was the '60s, but yeah. but they were they were it was that was the top. In other words, you couldn't get any better than that. Well, I, I think George Martin, this is just my opinion, I don't know, but I think, and I've seen the documentary on George Martin, so it kind of establishes this, the fact that he worked so long on things like The Goons and other British comedy and other stuff that really wasn't rock and roll uh, gave George Martin the ability to understand understand space and timing and just the overall picture, if you will, of the sound, picture, sound picture, where if he was just a straight rock and roll guy, it might not have been so, like what you're talking about, so full and like you're in the room and present. Right, right. You know. he, had a, he, he had a huge palette to draw from. In other words, yeah. he had a, a, a long, um, many years of experience doing many different things that he actually brought into working with them. Right. They benef- they benefited from the goons and from all the other stuff that, that George had done previously. Right. And of course since they were fans of Peter Sellers and everything, you know, they encouraged it. They said, Oh, make our record sound like this. Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this is this is a funny thing that, that I say when I talk to uh, people about, you know, like when if if you're a young group and you know, I say, Oh well you know, well we used to, you know, uh, hear the the Beatles saying you know that they didn't know how to read music, so we thought, oh well, we're not going to bother to learn because the Beatles didn't. But we don't have George Martin, so you know. What yeah. I mean? So, in other words, George Martin was able to interpret a lot of the stuff, and like in other words, I don't think John and Paul could have written the score for Eleanor Rigby. No. You know what I mean? So, in other yeah. words, they were, you know, they were so fortunate that that they had somebody that talented with them that could interpret their ideas, and it was a, it was, it's just everything possible that could have lined up right for those guys it was 
it was just sheer magic. In other words, they had the, they were in the right place at the right time. The four yeah. of them together was just unbelievable magic. Yeah. George Martin being their producer, it's just it, and Brian Epstein being their their manager. Right. And and the time frame that they came out, it was just like it was just like this cosmic thing that was meant to be. And that's why we're talking about it 55 years later. Right. And it, it is fortunate for them that somebody like a George Martin didn't hog the spotlight. Like we mentioned Andrew Luke Oldham. He kind of did in a certain respect, and he wasn't very good. But George Martin, he said, oh, you know, this uh, Yesterday song might sound nice with some strings. I'll, I'll compose something for that. But he didn't say, George Martin presents with strings yesterday. You know, he just kind of was like, you know, produced yeah. by George Martin. Very small and subtle, you know, and right, we, we right. never knew, you know, we just said, oh, you know, there's strings on this, not knowing that, you know, it's not like Paul sitting there, all right, boys, you know, let's do this, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. it leads me to believe, to, uh, to another question, kind of going back a bit, you know, it's like, we we're talking about the chipmunks and these newer recordings, so, how do you record nowadays, and do you try to keep these type of things we're talking about in mind? You know, I I try to uh, okay. whenever we can, whenever we can. I, I like everybody to be in the same room for the initial uh, basic track. Okay. Uh, it, it drives some of the the guys that we work with a little crazy because it's harder to control. Um, but that's you know I I. I don't mind mistakes. I don't mind a flat note here or there. You know, in other words, it's mm -hmm. like, uh, I mean, I don't love a flat note, but I'm just saying, in other words, you know, yeah. I, I, I can tolerate some stuff because the music breathes. Um, right. You know, they do stuff where they can fly sections in this chorus into the second chorus, and it's like, well, th that kind of just, it, um, it, um, it takes away from the whole, um, it takes away from the whole uniqueness of any kind of, um, you know, um, it, all right, so you listen to certain songs, like let's say the Mamas and Papas, when they do a, I saw her again last night, at one point he comes in in the wrong spot, and they left him. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, and, and, you know, John Lennon, he never double-tracked himself you know, well, he, I shouldn't say he never, but many times when he was double tracking himself, he didn't even say the same word. Right. He might say, "Now you got a boyfriend. Now you got a guy down." The street, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know. And of um, course, now they consider that, oh, that that was a mistake. You shouldn't have that, and so they keep that out of the canon, you know, as it were, unless they put out a mono edition or something like that. And it's like, I'll just put it out. Come on, yeah. Yeah. I, I saw I saw a thing recently on YouTube where somebody was, I believe it was I'm looking through you, and they're deeply criticizing, you know, oh Ringo's drum beats are different here than they were on the previous verse, and it's like, I don't know if they were really trying to sound so mechanical. I mean, it's like, I think they would play by feel, you know, that hey this feels right, let's do it, not sit there. Oh, we forgot a drum beat on this one note. Well, we better go back and re recorded or lay over another track or something i don't know but yeah i mean at the end of the day if people enjoy the music the song whatever it is you you, you got it you you know in other words you nailed it you did your job yeah um you know and that's you know and but like i said uh however you get to that is you know as long as you get to it uh because i look at it like this with music in general it's like you know um there's only good music and bad music. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's what, that, there's only two categories. It's yeah. really good and bad. And so, uh, you know, if, 
you know, if I hear something that comes out today and, it, and it's good, I, you know, I, 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 I li- I'll like it. You know, it doesn't have to come from my era. Uh, it, it, you know, like I said, I have recordings of ours that I feel like we nailed it. And then on a couple of them, I go, you know what? We just, and I'm sure every artist feels that way. Yeah. You know, you don't knock it out of the park every single time. Um, you do the best you can. Sometimes with time constraints, you don't have the opportunity to spend as much time as something because, like, like uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, we got asked to do um, a couple a song for a Monkeys compilation called "Listen to the Bands," mm. uh, and so um, I think I, I got I had pneumonia. Uh, for two weeks uh, before the deadline so we had to we went in and we recorded like more than we needed to and we we made the deadline um, and but it was the kind of thing that if I had a little more time maybe I would have done things a little differently maybe not but but they wound up picking two of our songs so that was, you know, so that, that was good um, but I'm just saying it's that kind of thing and I've heard John Lennon say it in interviews where you know he would change things on his recordings if he could you know at right. some point you have to put the paintbrush down and just yeah. go you know well I know what that's like when writing my books you know and sometimes I cringe and, and mistakes get out I will just leave it that bad you know but it's like at least it came out you know I can't sit there and be a perfectionist and I can always correct it in future and stuff like that just to kind of tidy it up but in general you know it's like there there does come a time on any creative project where you just kind of say all right enough let's do it here it is yeah <laughs> um, I understand I have you know a lot of weird questions so they're kind of random but it, they're all about the characters so how many albums have you rec- recorded over the years or how many songs have you recorded over the years so, you know. oh well we have the, the one that's called the characters which is on Blackheart Records yeah. uh, I think that's got 13 on there and then we've got the early characters which was kind of like uh, it had the 10 Chip Douglas songs and then various demos and live things and that's why we even threw the little Rodney thing in there we had space on it only came out on a on a CD mm. so we knew we had 72 minutes on a CD and we were going to fill up 72 minutes <laughs> so you know at one point there's even a, a character's hotline message just to show uh, how wacky we were back in the day like we would we would <laughs> like I said pre-internet pre-cell phone pre-all that you'd have to call our answering machine to find out where we were playing it was like hi everybody oh, wow. this weekend this weekend we're at whatever it was and then you know as time went on we those would turn into skits too we would do skits on the answering machine um, <laughs> I know it was nuts but I mean people loved it um, and so um so, so we have that the early characters, the one called the characters, and we're working on a new one um, that's got some stuff that you know that we've had sitting around that we never finished, and because recording is more um, affordable these days, yeah. you know, we we hope to have something out in the next couple of months uh, that, that we're working on now. Um, every once in a while, you'll see us post something on Facebook, a song. I actually put one up today that was. Um, a song called September Never Came which is about Marilyn Monroe but mm-hmm. I, I left I left it ambiguous in the lyrics so you wouldn't know you'd have to listen to the song and then decide yourself if you could figure it out the first time I put it up I didn't tell who it, who it was about I asked people to guess and most people you know either they said some the wrong person or some people said Marilyn Monroe um, but anyway so mm-hmm. so we are working on stuff uh, it's just a matter of I have not figured out the digital world yet as far as <laughs> You know, getting 
Alexa to play the stuff and getting on the iTunes and all that. Yeah. We were talking to Black Heart Records about putting our catalog out. That may or may not happen. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but um, but we will get out there in the next month or two and yeah. have our catalog out there for people to just say, yeah. Alexa, play the characters. Right now, if you tell her to play the characters, she just plays the Rodney skit. So oh, okay. kind of weird. Because <laughs> yeah. it's on a Christmas compilation that they uploaded. Right. Yeah. And that, that's so weird today about music. I mean, I hate to say it. Well, it just is what I do. It's like I still like albums or CDs or whatever, you know, and I like the packaging and everything. And it's like, yeah, I can listen to Sirius and I can listen to Spotify and I can listen. But to me, it's like listening to the radio in the old days. It's like I don't really own it, you know, and it's like I want it on a on something you know and it's like it's it's weird that people don't think that way anymore it's like oh it's all streaming this is great you know and it's like hmm okay so do you struggle with that as a performer or uh anything else yeah. or yeah because because yeah because when you know when i buy captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy and i get to open up the album and see the gatefold painting and see the booklets with the lyrics and and i get to open up the white album and i get a poster and i get four pictures of the band and whatever it might be uh and i get to read who played what on every track and who wrote what yeah that's i'm from that school yeah. um so I also have been thinking about, you know, putting the character stuff on vinyl and putting the, you know, and all that. And I'm just, you know, I'm just concerned that I'm going to do it and then I'll have 800 copies sitting in my garage. Because, you know, you yeah. know, I'm just being honest because, yeah, you know, yeah. I would love, I would love for the people that if I had, if I knew there was enough people out there that would love to have a vinyl copy, I would do it in a second. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, but I, like I said, I, I, I don't need, um, I don't need a garage full of characters records. Right, right. I don't, I don't you blame know. you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but as far as recording, how often do you record then? If you're not really putting out records, or you just put out videos, or what do well, you do? Well, we're we're, tr- we're we've been trying to get uh, this this record out. We even have a name for it. I'm not even going to give it away yet. But we, have, we we are we're trying to get this. We have we have enough songs for another record and, and then some. Uh, and it's just a matter of you know getting everybody together. And and like I said, we've we've recorded some stuff, and I was like, God, we didn't nail this one, so I don't want to put it out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's that kind of thing. It's like you, you know. So it's weird. I mean, I don't know if you ever listen to some of the anthology stuff and you go, "Oh, this is a great song," but they didn't get it on this one. You know what yeah. I mean? Other, yeah. You could see, you could see why they didn't put this one out. Right. It wasn't there yet. So we we really just want to wait until we we get definitive versions of them, mm-hmm. and we might let them slip out one at a time through Alexa or whatever it might be, and then put the whole thing out on a vinyl thing, depending on what kind of uh, interest we get. Right. Uh, definitely, definitely going to do something. I mean, there's there's no set amount, but I'm just curious on on your songs. How many takes do you usually do? Well, the problem is I mean, we, <laughs> that might be a loaded question, but anyway, yeah, we can do up to five or six or seven takes. But you then then yet you have to listen to five or six or seven of them over <laughs> and over again. You know what I mean? You go, right. you know what? This one this one starts out good, but I don't like this part here. It's almost better if you limit it to like two or three because then mm. you can focus. When you start getting into take six or seven, after a while you don't you don't even know what you're hearing anymore. Right. You know what I mean, you know, so yeah, the, you oh. know, we, we we've got that's what we did with our, <laughs> we we recorded about just recently, we recorded about six tunes. And some of them had multiple takes, and then after a while, I was just like, I, I can't listen to it anymore because I don't know what I'm listening to anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so we might go in and, and redo them again, just because now we've all had a chance to 
listen to them and say, oh, you know what, I could have done that better. This is how we want to end it. You know, uh, you know what? He, I've heard Keith Richards say this. Sometimes what will happen is, um, you know, you record a song and it comes out, and two years later you're playing it and you find some little thing that you wish you would have put in while yeah. you're doing it live. You go, oh, I'm, this lick was great. Why didn't I put this one in? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so. Yeah. I think the most amazing one in their catalog that just sprang to mind is Start Me Up is that they tried it like two or three separate times as a reggae tune and it just wasn't happening and then one day he just played this Keith Richards one day he just played the da 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 like everybody knows you know and it's like that's it you know let's yeah. not do it as a reggae song you know <laughs> so yeah yeah and that that was around since like you know 5 years before it came right. out Right. Yeah. I think they we tried have, it for some girls, and they tried it for emotional rescue. It wasn't happening. So. <laughs> yeah, we we um we had a song that we recorded for the with Chip Douglas called Miss America, uh-huh. and it was a, it was a slow ballad, and it, and and it was good. I mean, it's it's out. It's on the early characters. Uh, and we were rehearsing one day in the basement, and I was frustrated about something, so I started it as an up tempo rocker in a different key, mm-hmm. and and we were like, wow. And so we recorded it, and, we, and it came out on the debut album as a as a rocker. You know, oh, okay. a, you know. So if you if you uh, if you want, you can play the two and let people decide which one they like better. Okay. Um, yeah, because because uh, it, it's that kind of a thing. You know what I mean? It's it's um, there's so you know that's the problem. There's so many variables. You can change the tempo. You right. can change the feel. You could change the key. You might have two different sets of lyrics that you like. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's like, you know, it, it's it's kind of you know. It drives you nuts a little bit. You're yeah. never sure if you made the right choice. Yeah, it's kind of funny. One comes to mind also is Help Me Rhonda by Beach Boys. And I think it was the Endless Summer compilation that they put the album version, not the single version, and mm-hmm. where it fades out and fades in and all sorts of weird stuff. And it's like, it just didn't work. It's like the single version is the preferred version or definitive right. version. And it's like, but someone at Capitol, uh, at least on the LP version, put put the album version instead of the single version on that compilation originally, and it's like, the first time I heard it, it's like, what's this? Because I didn't have all the Beach Boys albums, I just heard the single tracks, and I thought it, it, the record was broken or something, I, you know, when it was fading in and out, and then years later when they put out all the CDs, oh yeah, they did two versions of it, oh, okay. It yeah. Was, so. yeah, well, you know, the other thing that's weird about, about stuff that you didn't know about is when I used to hear She's a Woman and uh, I Feel Fine, I used to think, why is there so much reverb on this? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> terrible. And then when Past Masters came out and I heard the British version, I was like, this makes much more sense to me. It yeah. sounds crisp and clear. The other one sounded like it was just drenched in just this, like it was like, did they record this in a cave? What's going on here? Right. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I initially started buying the earlier albums on the U.S. versions, and then uh, somewhere along the line, I became a Beatle fan in the late 70s, and somewhere along the line, they put out that big blue box that had all the British albums all in one box, and my mom gave it to me for a Christmas present, so I said, well, I'm going to play these instead. So I got used to the the real versions, not knowing this is the real versions, you know, because they had more tracks on the album and everything like that, and I said, well, why play these other ones? And then, you know, it wasn't until years later when they put out the Capitol C CDs, I go, wow, there is a lot of echo and reverb on these things. I didn't realize that, but... Yeah, 
you know, I understand why they did it. It's kind of a silly reason, but, you know, it's like, uh, I think it's Bruce Spicer's book that talks about it in detail. And it makes sense. They were trying to target the American market at the time, you know. Right, right, and, right. Yeah. Everything, is, everything makes sense when it's happening at the time. And then when you look back on it, you go, oh, that might not have been the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, Spicer's books are really great. Yeah. And uh, now I will say this, you know, and uh, you may think otherwise, but, you know, it's like you go through the British albums, you go through the uh, American albums, and I still prefer, like, uh, the American Rubber Soul over the British one, (laughs) even though that's not what they wanted to do, you know? Because oh, I, I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people. And, like and for some reason, for me, I don't know about you, is like I think "Drive My Car" is totally wrong for that album. It's like, you know, and it's probably because I heard it on yesterday and today first, and then, yeah. you know, and then I got the British Rubber Soul, and I said, "What's it doing on here?" Okay, but uh, so I always preferred the American Rubber Soul, and then the other one that yeah. I prefer is kind of meet the Beatles over with the Beatles just because they put the single hit. But I get it. They weren't doing that in England at the time, putting the single hits on the albums typically. Well, I mean, you know, the thing that just blows my mind is that, you know, they've got songs like She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand and Hey Jude, and they're not on any of their albums. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm going to myself, what, are you kidding me? That would be my lead-off song. Right. You know, I'd be like, you know, to put, like, if could you imagine how much better the White Album would be with Hey Jude on it? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. And but, they uh, did that with Elvis, too. It's like, you know, you get some Elvis album that he made, like, during the early 60s before he did all the movie soundtracks. And it's like, where's the hits? There's no hits on here. <laughs> and you have to get Elvis's Golden Records Volume 12 or whatever, you know, to get right. all the hits on something. And it's like, huh? You know, and I didn't get that. The, you know, single really was a separate entity at one point, you know, and that, that kind of went away later on, but, you know. <laughs> yep. And then now it's kind of back because people don't make albums anymore. They do <laughs> like YouTube. You can record a, a track with a video or whatever and put it on YouTube. I don't know. So it's like yeah, it all, all goes around, you know. So I don't know. Um, let's see. what We talked about a lot of things. Actually, there's a few things I wanted to ask you about. This I have to ask you about, and I wrote it down like three times to make sure I asked you about Um what was the circumstance? You were the one that asked Ringo about the I've got blisters on my fingers on his VH1 video special. How did that come about? I was working for Joan Jett at the time, and <laughs> they said uh, they're shooting storytellers over... Uh, well, I heard they were shooting storytellers over, uh, you know, on the other side of town. Uh, and so I said, uh, you know, could you get me in? You know, and, and they, said, yeah. they said, yeah. And so I got in, and... Uh, when when it when it came time for um you know he said does anybody want to ask a question and i don't know why nobody was raising their hand um i guess they were intimidated or something so uh so so he um you know i i you know i stand up and i ask the question i I didn't know what i was going to ask you know what i mean i was like trying to think of you know something to ask and i i don't know i i this is something that i wish that like the Beatles I, I sent it into the Beatles uh, series channel I, in their little uh, um, thing that they do their uh, you know their, their uh, Wednesday night they do that you know uh, um, fab forum you mm-hmm. know but, I, but what I, I I always didn't know if it was Ringo or John who, yeah. who who said I've got blisters on my fingers and so when I had the chance I asked him and uh, and, and, and he said it was him and I 
I'm just curious if I if that cleared it up for everybody or if everybody always knew who it was. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I thought this is well, this is my truth. I mean, I always thought it was Ringo. Then in 1980, they put out the Beatles Rarities album, and on the first pressings of it, it says it's John, and I said, oh. I guess I'm wrong. And then they corrected it later, but I didn't know that, so I thought it was John for the longest time. And then when I heard the Ringo thing in your question, and I didn't know it was you, like I said, I found out later, oh, this is the same guy, um, uh, it, that Ringo cleared it up. And uh, so now I know it's Ringo for sure because he said so out of his own mouth. But I think still people are confused because, like I said, the Rarities album came out accidentally saying John, and some people just think it's John, and, you know, so... Yeah, I didn't even know I was on the record. A friend of mine called me up and he goes, you're on the new Ringo record. I'm yes, like, I'm, 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 I'm what? And I'm like, you know, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, don't ask me why, but out of all the questions, they only picked your question. Yeah. And uh, And so I was like... Uh, I gotta get to the store. <laughs> yeah, go well, def up, definitely know? on the album because I think on the the tape of the performance, I think there's a few more questions. But yeah, yeah, yeah. on the CD, yeah, you're the only one who made it on there, and they gave you yeah. name credit, which I found amazing. They could have just said anonymous questioner asked this, you know. <laughs> And that's why I was like, I, I have to ask this. And I, I meant to ask you, you know, just when we're chit-chatting about chipmunks and monkeys and everything. And I said, no, I'll wait till the podcast. <laughs> you know, so you can give me a live answer here. <laughs> I didn't even realize my name's on the CD. I don't yeah, see yeah. that. Really? It's, I got to check that out. I, yeah. I, I don't see that. A <laughs> um, couple other questions. Uh, so you... Obviously, we're talking about working with Joan Jett and everything, but here's a few other people you worked with. Uh, it says on something, I think it was like your little bio, you opened for Gilbert Gottfried. Did you work with him, or was again, was no, it a situation no, where you're opening? Just, yeah, that was just a one-off. Uh, we, we just did a gig, gig with him, yeah. It was, the, the, the interesting thing about that one was that Stuttering John from Howard Stern's show was at that gig, too, and got up and did a song with us, uh, a Stone <laughs> song. But, yeah. Like Gilbert did his thing, and cousin Brucey was there, and it was just you know, it was just like a weird thing, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, you pl did you play or just uh, with Ray Manzarek at the Doors? Yeah. Um, okay. Actually, Ray Manzarek got up and did uh, Roadhouse Blues and Light My Fire with us. We we would do these um these uh, celebrity signing things, you know, like uh, conventions, you know, like uh, like a, a smaller version of Comic Con all over the place. Right. Uh, you know, like and. And they would have these guests, and they said, Ray Man's Eric is going to be there, but he's not going to play with you guys. So we didn't learn any door songs. Um, <laughs> and then he said, oh, you know, he starts playing, and he looks at us like, come up. You know, and we're like, come up? What do you mean, come up? You know? <laughs> uh, and so we start Roadhouse Blues in the wrong key. Whoops. Uh, and I, yeah, and we start it in A, because we ask him, we go, what key is it? And, and Larry, our bass player, goes, I think it's A. And then Ray goes, yeah, it's A. We start it in A, and I'm going, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is, this is not the right key. And halfway through, we uh, we uh, we realize it's E, and we switch over to E, which is it was fine. It's fine, but uh, yeah. So we did light my fire with him and Roadhouse Blues, which that was, and he was really cool. It was yeah. really, you know, very gracious. You know, um, was into it. I mean, you know, it was really weird playing light my fire with him and watching him get into that zone that he gets into during right. the solo. Right. So that was that was a moment. That was definitely a moment. Then um, this is more, you know, I knew you did the different uh, TV-related conventions. So 
I think you played with Barry Williams or the Brady Bunch or some or most no. of them or how did that work? No, <laughs> we did we did one of those things. We were doing the monkeys conventions and and this girl Jody who was running the monkeys conventions uh, did, decided to do a Brady Bunch convention. And so, you know, there's not really a lot of Brady Bunch songs. I mean, there is, but we didn't know them. Uh, so, what we, so what we did was we, did, we just did our 70s act, which is like, you know, songs like Kung Fu Fighting and, oh, okay. you know, um, and, you know, Build Me Up Buttercup, things like that. You know, we just did our, our party set for the people. Yeah. And um, I don't remember if he came up or not. I don't think he came up. But, okay. I don't, uh, yeah. Okay. But, we, yeah, we did, we did a Brady Bunch convention. That's what that was. Okay. And just as an aside, since you mentioned that, I mean, in your sets, a typical set, uh, are you like, uh, like, let's say, Flo and Eddie of the Turtles, that you could play probably anything from any era, or uh, you have to kind of learn it, or what? Well, we have to. We obviously have to learn yeah. stuff, but we basically do stuff that we grew up on. Oh, okay. Um, you okay. know, that's the kind of stuff that we pull from. So, in other words, you know, there's always a lot of Beatles, a lot of Stones, a lot of, you know, um, you know, or just a, a lot of the the, the 60s stuff that we like. Like, in other words, we'll do Black Is Black by La the Bravo, so mm -hmm. Photograph by Ringo, or, um, you know, um, Eleanor by the Turtles. Just, okay. You know. You okay, know, so you have a pretty like extensive repertoire to draw from, basically. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then one other one I, I I wrote down, and there might be more if you want to bring them up, but the other one was Ron Dante of the Archies. Did you play with him? Uh, yeah, we did. Actually, we did a thing called Rock Con in 2010, and, um, and at that gig there was um, uh, Mary Wilson from the Supremes, okay played with us Hilton Valentine played with us uh, Phil Fang Volk from uh, Paul Ray and the Raiders oh, wow. um, I'm trying to think uh, Andy Kim did a couple songs with us Ron Dante did some stuff with us um, Vince Martellus from Vanilla Fudge um I'm, I I I got to keep thinking. A couple of guys, John Ford from Straubs was at that thing. Uh, Carlos, um, uh, what's Bowie's uh, guitar player? Carlos Alomar. Carlos, Carlos Alomar played my Melody Maker and played some songs with us. Uh, Chasm Sultan from the Black Hearts and Utopia. He did a couple songs with us. Um, wow. Len Burtnick, a Jersey guy. There was a lot. Of, there was a lot of people at that thing. I mean, we played with a lot of people throughout our career voice and heart that was a different one of the monkeys conventions we actually backed up voice and heart oh, wow. we've had julie newmar from batman on stage with us <laughs> we've had um twice julie mar julie newmar was on stage with us um we had harry nielsen in the studio with us while we were doing our this could be the night which was uh oh, wow. um rodney's theme song that we re-recorded with henry dilt the famous rock photographer and he was also part of the mfq yeah. and he also took the back album cover for one of our albums hmm. um and, and he was in, in the band with chip douglas um trying to think who else um i'm you know just uh, we opened for three dog night uh we opened for mickey dolan's solo um just trying to think who else i'm i'm, I'm leaving out people but yeah, um yeah. But we, you know, but we definitely have played with, you know, a, a lot of people, um, and like sometimes it was crazy people, weird people, like that you wouldn't expect. Like Michael J. Pollard got up and did me and <laughs> with us one time. Uh, Karen, Karen Lynn Gorney got up and did Let It Be with us. Oh wow! Um, yeah, um, you know the girls, uh, the, the Landis sisters, is that their names? So oh. one was on Vegas and one. Was oh yeah, on... uh, Julie Landers, Audrey Landers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Judy, I, Judy, I said. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm tr not the one that was on Vegas. The other one, she got up and did me and Bobby McGee with us. Okay, Audrey's the um, other one. Uh, uh, oh, Audrey, yeah. Audrey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm trying to think who else, but I mean, you know, wow. just a lot, a lot of, a lot of, if I, you know, I, I should make a list, because uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, interesting stuff. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> so, um, I hope the listeners are too. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug or anything? We're probably running out of time here. And Yeah, okay, so if you want to learn more about us, we're uh, thecharacters.net. Mm-hmm. That's how you find us, and uh, that's about it. And I, I had a blast, and thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Danny Salazzi, for being my special guest. Episode number 39 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. You can become a patron of Fun Ideas Productions, and if everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, it would be a tremendous help. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Our opening and closing themes are provided by Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb. If you'd like to know more information about his music, please drop me a line. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019, Fun Ideas Productions. And thank you very much, and have a good night. of your life.